Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Welcome. My name is Tracy Locke and I'm the curator of Australian art and I will introduce this new display to you and I would like to introduce also my colleagues who will be speaking. Nikki Cumston at the back will speak after me, wonderful Elle Freak and Gloria Streslecki. So we're going to share it around today. I would like to also acknowledge the contribution of Rebecca Evans and also our Curator of Asian Art, uh, Rusty Kelty, in achieving this reiteration of this display. This display itself is called Cosmos, and it is the first of seven anthologies that unfold throughout the, the Elder Wing. These seven anthologies collectively express a story of Australian art as you walk through. It's been very much front of mind for us for that story to convey the idea of the connectedness of humanity. Which brings me to this space and the relaunch of this display called Cosmos. It's actually very dear to me because it's like the nerve center of all of the anthologies that follow. It's been called um, Cosmos because the works really aim to orientate our visitors and for people to get a sense of the unity of all life and the flow of cultural exchange across not only country and the earth, but the sky and also the sea. The whole idea of our big story here at the Art Gallery of South Australia was really conceived in 2018. The whole permanent collection was reconsidered and it wanted to explore the idea of actually Australian art being very much boundless, not constrained by borders, and Australian art that was inclusive, but also very oceanic, and certainly aiming to convey a story that explored ideas of the fluidity of belonging and the flexibility of identity. Essentially, we were the first major state gallery and federal in the whole nation to actually completely unzip Australian art history from a very fixed linear chronology. So what you will find with the anthologies as they go through, and even in this space, you will find the works cross time. So Time very much became a secondary idea and the intersections of emotion with objects themselves has been very much elevated. So I'm really just trying to ease you into really comprehending that this is a complex story, it's a very big story, but it's a very innovative story. And so we're very proud of it here. 
What I would also like to point out is as you walk through almost entirely everything that you are viewing and certainly in this space, every object is actually drawn from our permanent collection. Okay, so what we did going back to 2018 was that we were quite radical and we tested curatorial methodologies insofar as our approach to thinking about our permanent collection was taking on an approach that had been used for biennials or temporary exhibitions and displays. And we applied some of those ideas to the permanent collection. So permanent collections of a nation's culture tend to be highly sensitive and very potent and very protected and very conservative. So again, I just ask you to understand that I, we are talking about the permanent collection and it's a collection of course that we're very proud of for sharing with our local audiences, our international audiences and our um, so international, national and local audiences. So what is it Adelaideans would like to say to, to everybody? What are we trying to say with our collection? And again, I come back to this idea of the unity of all life. But at the same time, we're navigating some very complex ideas and concepts. I'm going to try and be very quick in so far as I would like to just mention a couple of masterpieces in this space that uh, belong to what we call Australian colonial art, which I always consider in terms of the big story of Australian art, it is the problem child. It is very complex. Australian colonial art very much um, is its origins, of course, were in the grand European traditions, but the reality of the development of Australian colonial art is very different. The reality was that um, its development was very fragmented, it was very accidental at times, and so we actually don't know everything. There are many mysteries, there are many enigmas, and many curiosities, unlike some of the curators will speak about contemporary art, we know about the artists, we know all of the information with Australian colonial art, we do not know. But it is a problem child, we do love this child, but um, it is also very distinctive insofar as it does have a showing, an indication of its kind of curious history. So what I would like to do is very briefly point your attention, direct your attention to this fantastic work here, a masterpiece of Australian art by John Lewin titled Fish Catch Dawes Point. It is the earliest known oil painting in Australian art history. It is signed and it is painted by Australia's very first professional artist to arrive in the colony in 1800. John Lewin had trained as a, a natural history painter. And what this painting is, is a large, ambitious work showing the beautiful uh, fishes of, of Sydney Harbour. But if you take the time afterwards to have a closer look at this painting, you will see, yes, it's beautifully painted, but there is a seam that runs right across the bottom of this canvas. 
And it's because, of course, in 1800 or 1812, 1813, when this was painted, there were no art supply shops in Sydney. And so the artist had to stitch canvas together to create this larger work. So again, you would not see that in Britain, but you will see things like this in Australian colonial art. It is also unusual because is it a natural history painting or is it a landscape painting or is it a still life painting? Again, you get artists arriving in Australia that shake off all of the restraints of their training and they start to improvise and produce works like this that you will not find. It's based on European traditions, but you will not find works like this. When I say difficult child, we love this painting here, but I can't tell you how big the files are of people writing into us to say, no, no, we've got the identification of the fish wrong. So there's been a huge dispute, dispute in Australian art, art history about the identity, identification of these fish, uh, which I won't go into, but again, the mysteries just keep on giving uh, with this particular collection. On the other hand, we have artists in this space and, and masterworks like our John Glover House and Garden on, on the back wall. And even with artists like John Glover, who quite frankly was the shining star of the golden age of Tasmanian colonial art, we know quite a lot about him and, and we love his work. But as we look at his work, and as we reinterpret our collection across time, we start to think very differently. We start to use a different lens when we look at his work, his work from the 1830s in, in Tasmania. And while they appear very glorious, we now know, we now know his work was unfolding against a background of dispossession, genocide, and environmental change. So it's bittersweet. And, and some of these issues uh, our wonderful other curators will talk about. So that's my very brief introduction. And I, we will be able to have some questions later. But what I would like to do is now hand over straight to wonderful Nikki Cumston. And Nikki will now speak to you about a couple of works in the collection or one work. Thank you. Thanks, Tracy, and hi everyone. It's wonderful to be here back in the gallery in 2023. Um, this year is a Tarnandi festival year, so in October uh, we'll be having the festival again, so we're busily working on that at the moment. Um, but it's wonderful to start the year with a new uh, display throughout these galleries and to be part of it today, to be able to talk to you about this incredible work that I'm standing alongside of Gail Marbo, and um, this work is titled To Guy. And Gail Marbo is an artist who started her career as a dancer through NASDA, the National Aboriginal and Islander Dance Theatre in Sydney. And she was born in 1967, just to give you a sense of how old she is. She's an incredible person. 
She's very charismatic and, and I just love, um, it was interesting because she came here to Adelaide to create this particular work for us in 2021 for the Tarnandi Festival. And to see her actually putting this work together was like a dance. And we do have a moving image, uh, like a short uh, time lapse of her doing that, which is online if you want to have a look. And there's a beautiful soundtrack, and it's a, a soundtrack that she actually wrote about her father. So she is the daughter of Eddie Koiki Mabo, who of course was the, the man who initiated, along with three other men, the whole idea of native title in Australia and overturned the whole terra nullius notion throughout the 1980s. In, it was the 3rd of June 1992 that, that it, was, it was overturned by the High Court and enabled Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people the right to apply for native title and to be recognised as the traditional owners of their country um, within Australia. And there are over 500 language groups that, that are entitled to apply for native title. So it, it was a huge, huge effort by him and, and his, uh, the men alongside him who did that. Eddie Koikimabo was from Merriam Murr Island in the Torres Straits and the initial claim was over the land rights and sea rights over the three islands within that region. And this particular map, so this is a map, and it goes by the traditional bamboo maps that were used for navigation through, through the Torres Strait Islands and right through the Pacific. So they, they were originally quite small, they could be handed to people and were made with shells and like bamboo shells and sometimes string and they're a navigational tool so that when you're at sea, you can be guided by the map through, in this particular case, this is a map of Tagai, so the constellation that guides you through that Miriam Murr Island, um, Island waterways. And you can actually see within this map, if you think of it, you try not to be too literal, <laughs> I always find it difficult to, to see that in the top left is Tagai's arm and it's his hand and he's actually pointing. So, so we have at different times of the year, the alignment of the stars of the constellation will guide you to the particular places. It also guides people on the islands as to the time to plant particular crops. So it navigates you through the whole journey of the life cycle of, of living on the island and successfully growing food sources and, and managing your way if you were travelling between the islands. So this particular uh, map has been created using bamboo, as you can see. And this bamboo was actually grown by Eddie Koikimabo in the grounds of the Botanic Gardens in Townsville. And Gail, as a child, would go with her father. That was one of his jobs, was to tend the gardens in, in the Botanic Gardens. And so this, she's given permission to cut this. So it was brought, as I said, in pieces down to Adelaide. 
And then what you see as the markers on the map are actually, they're 3D printed, so they're, they're like a form of plastic that are printed from the shapes of the sand that is on the western side of Mer Island. That, and that sand is shaped, this is the exact shape of the sand. So it's a star shape and it's from a mammal a, that's, that has passed like a, a dead shell of a, of a sea um, mammal. And so this particular shape, when Gail was a child, her father ran the sand through her hand and asked her to look for the stars. And she thought that was a little bit strange, like what's he asking me to look for stars in sand? And then to her delight, realized there were stars in this sand. So she enlarged the image under a microscope and had that image 3D printed and used them as the, the points on the map. So really interesting artist and someone who is really active and is working right across Australia in many different exhibitions, including the Sydney Biennale in 2018. Okay, I think I'll pass over now. I'm really sorry, I'm gonna ask you to now <laughs> turn, we're getting an exercise today, to turn to the back wall. Um, so I'll be focusing mostly on the work of Fiona Hall and her work Occupied Territory on the back. So for those of you who I haven't met, my name is Elle Freak and I'm the Associate Curator of Australian Paintings and Sculpture here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And I will focus on this meticulously crafted beaded work by Fiona Hall, but I'll also make reference to her other work in this display, Cell Culture, which many of you would have seen in the vestibule on your way in. But before I do this, I would also like to acknowledge Agza Ghana Yutanga Yuwindi, Agza stands on Ghana land. And of course, this statement always matters, but it feels particularly relevant here as we sit or stand in the very uncompromising neoclassical architecture of the Elder Wing, and as we continue what is a very complicated discussion of a very complex time um, in our history. So this is a time in history where we have the, as Tracy mentioned, um, forcible removal of Aboriginal people from land and waterways. And of course, it's a time of great devastation for people and culture, as well as for the environment. And these are some of the ideas that are embedded within Fiona Hall's work. I also wanted to point out how happy I was to work with my colleagues on this display and how we really did take this as an opportunity to consider some of those narratives within Australian art history and to work with several contemporary artists, including some right here in the audience. And with these artists and with my colleagues, we really have been trying to reveal some of those more hidden or overlooked aspects of history, which are not so evident in the colonial works that we have on our walls. These works do, with the example here of the Watling, uh, kind of portray a sense of optimism and hope for what um, many people at the time thought was going to be a prosperous new life in what they perceived incorrectly as a new untouched land. 
So some of the contemporary artists, I won't mention all of them, I will get to Fiona, but I do want to just reference a couple instances where we've worked with artists here that I'm excited about. And of course, Julie Goff on the back wall is an excellent example. Her work really does counter the optimism of Glover's quite peaceful depiction of an Aboriginal ceremony in particular, and Gloria Strislecki will talk to that in a moment. But also in Gallery 2, the gallery just adjacent to us here, we have works like that of Sue Newbone. Uh, Sue is a South Australian artist who goes through the colonial archive and oral histories to reveal some of the more sinister uh, stories and events surrounding her ancestors. We also have the work of James Tyler and Rebecca Selick and Alaire Pambigan, as well as many others. And in those cases, those artists with a butcher's block and garden rakes, uh, continuing cultural traditions passed on through generations, but ultimately revealing some really dark stories about Aboriginal domestic servitude. So, Fiona Hall, to get to the artist I'm supposed to be focusing on. Fiona is one of the more senior and certainly one of the better known artists in, in that kind of impressive lineup. Fiona Hall might be known to many of you, having once been Adelaide-based, and she has been making her work for over, I would say, five decades now, beginning in the 1970s with photography. So she's fascinating, I think, because of the way that she transforms everyday materials, working with materials like beads, as represented here, but also things like camouflage fabric and banknotes, even Tupperware containers are seen in cell culture. And she does this through very slow, labour-intensive processes, knitting, cutting, weaving, creating, as I said, meticulous works that almost appear like jewels. And so it's worth mentioning that she grew up in Sydney and she had a family that also had a kind of inquiring mind. So her mother was a scientist, her brother worked in mathematics, and so Fiona Hall is often referenced as kind of a contemporary day artist scientist of sorts. So while her work has changed materially through time, that does run true throughout her work. There's a kind of common thread, which is her interest in the natural world and all of its wonder, but also an expression of our kind of tenuous relationship with nature. So to focus here on occupied territory, this is a work where we can see a number of firsts for Fiona. It was made in 1995, and it was actually commissioned for the opening of the Sydney Museum, the Museum of Sydney, which of course stands on the site of the first government house. And so what Fiona has done for the first time is use these beads, which are essentially the kind of, she describes them, the currency of colonization and of conflict, being the fact that beads and also nails, as we can see here in this work, were traded by early colonists such as Cook and Banks to Aboriginal people, a kind of unfair trade during those difficult years. So what she has done with that material has, has been to make these curious representations of plant and seed species. So we have four introduced plants and four native plants. And the introduced are in white and clear beads and the native are in the black beads and nails. 
And if you look closely, we can identify a few words, a few marks, um, which tell us a little bit more about this, this uh, subject. So for instance, on the peach, which is closest to me, you can see at the very center within the red beads is a human tooth. And then around that, we have the words, thus we hope to prosper. And that was a statement that was published in the first Sydney Gazette in 1803. Um, and again, it's, it's expressing a, a sense of hope and optimism that many new arrivals uh, held at that time. But of course, for Fiona Hall, that is really in contradiction to, of course, the displacement of Aboriginal people. And the title of this work itself makes that statement, Occupied Territory, so she's refuting the concept of terra nullius. There are also many other little details I don't think I've got the time to go into, but for instance, on the acorn, again, just second down in terms of the introduced species, we see this red arrow, which is similar to a, a cartographic symbol on a map. And then as you go on, there's other inscriptions, there's a club. Um, and, and we could be here for hours, <laughs> I have to be disciplined, okay, five minutes. <laughs> but it is worth mentioning, of course, the display method. So again, this is another first for Fiona Hall. She used for this work this vitrine based on 19th century designs, and this was something that she repeats, has repeated in her work, and I believe continues to. And of course, this provides a physical and, and a conceptual frame for the way that we read the work. And um, it's a way of her continuing her comment on this kind of conflicted relationship that humanity has with nature, our need to discover it, to claim it, to collect it and to present it in um, these kind of unusual museum environments. So of course we can also see this device being used in the work cell culture, which is in the vestibule. I won't go into any detail, I'll try but that work, we also see uh, Fiona Hall using beads, but she said in this case, the beads reference not only um, ideas of, of human trade with nature, but also it was a comment on contemporary advancements in genetics. So that work is interesting in the way that Fiona is combining the man-made Tupperware with what are strange organic forms in that work, we see bat wings attached to plastic containers. We see a human ear and breasts attached to kind of measuring cups. Um, and really, we see essentially a series of monsters that are both familiar and completely strange and that appear more kind of surreal than scientific. Um, but I think essentially it's kind of going on what Tracy mentioned earlier, that Fiona was also at that time looking at the interconnectedness of all things and essentially presenting to us, you know, elements of, of humanity, culture and the environment as one. So I might leave it there, but I will, sorry, ask you to turn the other way for the last time to hear from Gloria Strzelecki. Thank you, Elle. My name is Gloria Strzelecki and I'm the Associate Curator here at the Art Gallery of South Australia of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art, working really closely with my colleague Nikki, but also with um, Tracy and Elle. So thank you 
for the invitation to um, speak to you all today. I do also want to acknowledge Aksagani Atanga Yuandi, but I also do want to acknowledge the diversity of language groups that are represented here uh, amongst our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and also the diversity of making. You may have witnessed these larrakitch as you walked into the space. And I feel like I just want to talk about them briefly because it really does connect this idea of this interconnection between the past and the present, this kind of idea of the non-linear hang that Tracy spoke about, this idea of time being reflexive, and where best to see that than in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art. And the Larrakitch, that cyclical idea of the past, the present, and the future interconnecting. So Larrakitch being the hollow log ossuary or a bone container, the final stage of a mortuary ritual or routine around Yongu people from the northeast Arnhem Land. This is the final stage where, where the bones are placed in the ossuary, they are returned back to country. So the place where the hollow log was first found, the stringy bark collected again in the dry period or dry season, connecting back to nature where the termites have hollowed out these logs and then the bones returning back to country. We see here with Mr Wangamura's beautiful larrakitch the sort of connection between the cyclical nature of the seasons connected back to what Nikki was talking about with Gail Marbo, Marbo's um, tagai. The Wanapini that are the clouds here that speak of the advent of the trade season where the Macassan fisher people would travel to the northern waters of Australia. The first known trade in Australia as early as the 15th century. These trade winds would signal the arrival of the fisher people from Sulawesi. The triangular shapes there are the sails that were on the prow. And we see the prow in Mini Mini Manmarika's bark painting here, who as a young man would have seen the last of the trade of the tree pang before it was um, outlawed by the South Australian government in 1901. So I think there's this interconnection that happens in the works that are all here in Gallery One at the moment. But I will be talking about Julie Goff's work. And one of the guiding principles of Tarnandi and here at the Art Gallery of South Australia is always to let the artist's voice shine. So is th there is no way that I can speak to Julie Goff's work as the way she can. So I do recommend you all jump online. There is a wonderful Papampampalia talk that she gave as part of Tarnandi and also a First Friday talk. And there is also a talk that I've done as well on the website. There's just so much to unpack in this space here. And perhaps, you know, another talk, another time. But I was going to briefly introduce Julie, and I think perhaps the best words for Julie are super sleuth and time traveler. So here we go, back to time. Julie is an artist who delves very deeply into many museum and gallery collections, archives, in order to expose the hidden and subsumed histories of this country. And in doing so, she also uncovers things about her ancestors, primarily her um, matrilineal side. Um, her patrilineal side is of Scottish descent, which uh, Malahide does speak to a little bit, this work in the centre with the coal necklace. 
However, Julie's quest to uncover these truths saw her present work as part of Psychoscape, her installation as part of Our Last Tarnity in 2021, where she included this work titled The Promise, which was first, the first iteration of the work was seen in, now I always get the two words mixed up, Tense Past, her exhibition in Hobart, a sort of survey exhibition of her practice. And this work is basically a chair, a found chair that has been turned upside down and she has included these cutouts. And when you look closely at them and the illumination of those cutouts, you witness quite a horrific scene. And these are taken from pictograms that were found in something called the proclamation boards. So Julie Goff is an artist who's predominantly interested in a period of time in Tasmania's history around the 1820s. And she often talks about this time as a, a time where Aboriginal people saw some of the worst violence committed against them. This is a period that saw the Black Line in 1930s and the Black War of 1924 and onwards. And in this period, we see the forced removal of Aboriginal people off their land and the destruction of a culture. In this work, Julie has taken those pictures from the proclamation boards, a board that was used as a vessel to show the consequences of violence toward Aboriginal people as well as violence to settlers. That it basically, in the words of tit for tat, that consequences would be the same for violence or frontier violence. But we all know that that wasn't the case with most violence being perpetrated against Aboriginal people. By the time 1930s when the um, Black Line had occurred, which was quite literally a, a human line of people walking across the country to remove Aboriginal people off country. Now, this campaign was successful in that it removed a lot of people who had remained on the lands since 1924 when the Black War first began. Julie is an artist who is constantly exploring and bringing forward those histories in a way for us to realise that what is now spoken of as an acceptable history, perhaps in the case of the Tasmanian sort of story, when we all visit Tasmania, we often think about the convict history, whether it's Port Arthur. And this is a history that is very readily spoken about. But the histories that aren't spoken about are often the Black War and the Black Line. So, as I mentioned, Julie did include the promise in that installation, and she also included works by John Glover, and other colonial artists such as um, Lyset and furniture pieces to kind of speak to her psychoscape installation. And while I won't unpack them, there is an interesting thought that she talked about in terms of memory and the memory that country holds, but also the memory that furniture holds or objects. These colonial pieces would have been in the homes of people who witnessed or perpetrated acts of violence against people. 
So as Tracy mentioned in Glover's portrait here of um, his home and garden, there are the sort of deeper things that Julie is bringing forward with her work, those things that aren't spoken about, aren't seen perhaps through the works. There's a lot to unpack and I think we've gone well over time. So I do encourage you all to perhaps listen to Julie speak. She is such an articulate speaker and also such a thorough researcher. Thank you for being here today. I will pass on to Tracy, who probably has some concluding thoughts. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gloria. I'll be very, very brief. I guess what I would like to just say is that never before in my entire professional life have I witnessed social change at such a rate and history just as you write something, we're throwing it in the waste paper basket and recycling it. Uh, but it's, it's so rapid that there's been a degree of anxiety, certainly within myself, as a custodian uh, with other curators here of this collection to absolutely try and keep abreast of change and, and honour these works, but also honour our audience's experiences. So it is, it is quite a challenge and, and it is fair to say that the idea of emotion running through as a thread for this collection is very important to me. And I, I must admit that with Julie Goff's work here, uh, it is a work that I can barely cast my eyes on. I, I find it so distressing, but we are being very, very brave with what we are trying and very ambitious with what we are trying to achieve here. And we are being all of us from our director, Rana, down, we're being very courageous and fearless with um, addressing some of the really tough stories of our history. So I will finish on that note and thank my colleagues very much. Just thank you very much for your attention and have a lovely day. Thank you. Thank you.